in, everybody, to another edition of Boy, I'm Doing That Radio Thing Again, also known as Sad Times. My name is Kevin. I'm your host. So happy you joined us. If you are here for the first time, welcome. If you're returning, welcome. Welcome to One and All. If you are here for the first time and have never listened to Sad Times, here's a quick primer. Sad Times is a show in which each week we have a kind and generous guest who comes on and talks about times from their life that were difficult, hard, that were upsetting, traumatic events that they've gone through. And we do this not to judge that person, not to solve the problem, nor to diagnose it. It is simply to allow that story to be told because we at Sad Times believe that these difficult times are universal stories, but they're not often told. So the hope here is that in each of these stories, somebody out there who's listening can hear something and say, hey, I thought I was the only one who went through that, or I thought I was the only one who uh, thought that way. So that's what Sad Times is. We do have a website. It is www.sadtimespodcast.com. Please go check it out. And if you haven't already, check it out, leave a review, and also please subscribe wherever you do find podcasts appearing on your phone. That is is where you can subscribe to Sad Times. All right, so that is Sad Times. Before we get to our wonderful guests today, uh, we do have to pay the bills per usual. So uh, let's get to this week's sponsor. This week's sponsor is the way Ron DeSantis stands at a podium during a debate. When not workshopping his very human smile, and when he is not throwing pointless red meat to the base, Ron DeSantis stands with his arms doing what no one's natural arms do, his hands turned as if he is mimicking a drawing of a Hanna-Barbera character. That's the way Ron DeSantis stands at a podium during a debate, the essence of charisma through posture. All right, well... As always, we do want to make sure that we do support our sponsors. Please use the code F-A-K-E at checkout. That's F-A-K-E at checkout. All right. Bills are paid. Brent, Wade, everybody ready? Okay, we're ready. All right. So let's get to our wonderful guest today. It is Melanie. Melanie, how are you doing? I'm good. Although I have to say your um, your sponsor has me laughing pretty hard. So oh, I'm, <laughs> I hope they're not listening one. because I, I want them to come back. I mean, that's that's a pretty good sponsor. But really, what is he doing with his arms? I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. But then again, I used to be an actor and I would be on stage sometimes. and I'd be like, I don't know what to do with my hands. There was a cattail cattail. Yes. What's that cat's name? This is squeaky. Hi, squeaky. And where are you today, Melanie? I am in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So I am near Lake Superior and we live in the woods. So we've got like 40 acres in the forest and then we butt up against a national forest. So we're very um, in the the woods and remotes. We're like 30 miles from like the town. Um, So we're pretty far out. That's pretty neat that you live like right up next to a national forest. Do you do a lot of hiking up there? Yeah, we do. Um, it's really cool because we have two dogs. And so we can just like walk out our front door and just go right for a walk in the woods. Like we don't have to drive places to find yeah. wooded areas. So like every morning we start our day with a walk in the woods and, you know, we can just kind of head out and go in different directions. It's really pretty. Do you ever read the Bill Bryson book, A Walk in the Woods out loud before you go on a walk in the woods? No. No? Okay. Just a just a suggestion. You know, I've not read the book, but I've heard it's funny. 
Um, and how long have you been up in the Upper Peninsula? Uh, so we've lived here full time now for just over three years. Uh, it was kind of like our, our second home, our cabin. We bought it back in 2018. Uh-huh. And then um, we ended up moving up here full time during the pandemic. Nice. That's a good place, I think, to be, especially with 40 acres and a national forest. Uh, and for anybody who has not been to the Upper Peninsula, no joke, it is beautiful up there. It is beautiful. Although we were talking before we recorded and you only have a couple inches of snow right now in January. Yes, we should have much more. And it's um, it's very sad because we get we do dog races up here in February. So it's kind of like a it's a pretty big event. And it's where a lot of the mushers do their oh, yeah. they qualify for the Iditarod in Alaska. Uh-huh. And so last year they actually had to cancel because we didn't have enough snow. And that was like a total fluke. Like that never happens. But now we have so little snow. It almost looks like they, you know, possibly they might have to cancel again. Which oh, would be a huge no. Bummer. And I bet, you know, I don't know much about that, but I bet those dogs get so excited about that. They do. They, it's really, I'm a dog lover. So when we went and watched, I was a little concerned because I was worried that it's, you know, I don't know, mistreated or something like that. But these are like sled dogs where like, they are all about pulling and running and they love it. And the mushers and the dogs, like they live together. They are like a total unit. So it is a for it's it's a really cool experience that's really cool well i hope that uh i can't believe i'm going to say this i hope that you get more snow uh i don't believe i've ever said that i uh as we discussed also i hate snow um even though i'm recording from right outside chicago so there's that um okay so you know melanie you reached out to us um let's talk about uh and you wanted to talk and we're going to get to some of the really cool work that you're doing um but let's talk about where you came from where you grew up can you tell us about where you grew up and and kind of how you were as a kid yeah so i actually i grew up in michigan and i grew up downstate and outside of kalamazoo michigan and i was the youngest of four so i had three older sisters and my mom and my dad And it was, you know, um, my parents gave us everything we wanted from like a material aspect, but it wasn't a very healthy or supportive or functional kind of home. There was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of physical abuse, emotional abuse. Um, My parents used to hit each other pretty badly. Um, It was, it was pretty ugly and pretty nasty at home. And I was really, really anxious. Like, first of all, I was just kind of born anxious. I'm just genetically kind of wired that way. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, I was always so stressed out about what was going on at home that I was just like this walking ball of anxiety all the time because I was so worried about my parents fighting. You know, I never wanted to go anywhere because I felt like I needed to be there to intervene, to stop them. Because my three older sisters were all kind of like dealing with it in their own way, Uh where they were kind of like out in the world. Like one of them, you know, developed a drinking very early on and they all kind of had their own ways of coping. But I felt like, okay, I'm the last one here. I need to protect. I need to stop the fighting. So I wouldn't leave and I would just sit at home and kind of read quietly and listen. And I knew kind of like the elevations that would happen, you know, when it got to a certain point, that's when I need to jump in because if I jumped in at that point, I could stop it from getting physical. So it was a pretty, 
it was a pretty stressful living environment, but you wouldn't have known that from the outside looking in. You know, we lived in a beautiful home and all Oh, yeah. And let me ask you this. So how old were you when you kind of felt the need to take on that responsibility as as to to stop the fighting, that very adult, non-child responsibility? You know, I remember starting that probably around like seven or eight. Wow. Um, I actually built like a little fort in the living room where I covered a table with a blanket and I had pillows inside of there because the living room was like a central location. So I could hear stuff going on upstairs and I could hear stuff going on in, in the family <sighs> room at the front of the house. So I would go in there with a flashlight in a book and I would just kind of lay in there and read and then wait until I needed to come out of my little fort and do something. Oh, so I remember starting that. Um, that is heartbreaking. That is very heartbreaking. Um, what what were, did you read like Roald Dahl? What did you like to read when you were younger? Um, so I read a lot of my sister's hand-me-down books. Mm. So a lot of like um, Judy Bloom. Sure. Um, you know, Beverly Cleary, like I loved Ramona. Yeah. Um, she was my absolute favorite. But my favorite, favorite book was this book called The Real Me by Betty Miles. And I don't even think it was that popular of a book, but for some reason it was in our little, you know, home library collection. And I reread that book over and over again. And it gave, gave me like hope because it was about this young girl who was, you know, had to kind of go against the grain and was strong. And, you know, people didn't think that she could accomplish things and she had to like prove herself and she did it with such courage and dignity and integrity. And so I got like so much strength from her. And so I, I reread that book constantly. That's awesome. And yeah, I had, before we spoke, I had never heard of that book. And that sounds like a pretty amazing book for, for uh, a young woman to read. So that's that's cool that somehow that got into your library. And hey, just a reminder, books, they're good. Okay. Uh, so, and so you're obviously a ball of stress and anxiety. If you are even building a fort and in there, yeah, sure, you're, you know, you're reading, you're relaxing, but you're listening for something that you're going to fear, you fear you're going to have to stop. So you're just always on, I would imagine. Were you yes. pretty active in school and uh, as you went up through your high school years and such? Absolutely. I was a total um, go-giver, go-getter, high-achiever kind of kid. So I did, I was a swimmer and I played softball. I did um, worked really hard at school. So I, you know, got good grades. Like in high school, I was in the National Honor Society. I did forensics and, you know, competed at the state level there. So it was, um, I was always trying to just, cause I, I think I felt like I didn't want to be a problem to my parents mm -hmm. because a couple of my older sisters had kind of taken on that role of being the, the problem people in the family. I think, you know, in, in family therapy, you learn, like when you study family therapy, you learn that a lot of times kids will take on the role of being the problem child so they can become the scapegoat of the family. So it gives the parents something to kind of focus on and fight about. And it's a very subconscious kind of thing that happens. But a couple of my sisters, you know, they took on those roles and they were really bad. And I did not want to 
cause any more conflict at home that was already occurring. So I felt like I need to do everything to prevent that. So I would clean the house. I would work really hard at school. I did, you know, I tried to do everything to the absolute best I could so that my parents wouldn't have anything to fight over. Again, heartbreaking. Um, And, but, and you also said like, oh, you lived in a nice house. Nobody even knew. So did you feel like you could, um, so you're anxious all day at home, the place where we're supposed to feel the safest, et cetera. Did you feel like you could talk to people outside of the home about what was going on, about the troubles that you were having personally or your family troubles? No. In our house, we were very much taught, like, you don't tell anyone what's going on. People, um, because first of all, my mom was always like, oh, it's just as bad in other homes as it is in ours. And so she kind of fed this belief that like this was going on, but I knew that wasn't true because I'd go to my friends' houses and I'd see them. I saw the way the parents talked to each other and it was very different than the way my parents spoke. So I knew there was no way that these parents were beating on each other, calling each other really cruel names or anything like that. But we were taught you don't share what's going on inside the house, but you also don't share what's going on inside of you. Mm. Like nobody needs to know what you're feeling or what you're experiencing because really like there's no need for you to feel bad, you know, almost like what's you're nervous. What's wrong with you? Why, why would you be scared? You've got it great. You've got this great house and you have a, you know, roof over your head. You've got nothing to complain about. Be quiet. So we were kind of taught to not share anything. So I would hold everything inside. I wouldn't tell anybody what was going on at home. I kept a diary and I did write in my diary. And um and I have all of those oh, good. my my diary I kept them yeah which was really helpful to kind of validate my experience a bit as I grew up but um but yeah I didn't tell anyone I didn't tell friends I didn't tell teachers or anyone I kept it all inside wow and you had told me too like so you it's it's you would maybe go to people maybe your parents right and say I'm anxious and they totally shut that down and said no you're not et cetera et cetera. So you had to find ways for you to cope uh, that felt healthy to you. So I know you said you journaled. You would go on walks by yourself just to get out of that environment and maybe to clear your head? Yes, I would go for walks alone a lot. And so, I would again, I would make sure, though, that it was like a good spot in the house where I knew, you know, either my parents were settled in or my sisters were away from home where nothing was going to happen. So I knew that it was it was safe. And then I would go for a walk by myself. I loved going for walks in the rain. It felt really just very, yeah, like really relaxing and soothing. Um, I would take a lot of baths and like bubble baths and like listen to music that was really calming and relaxing to me. I focused on, you know, it was probably very much like a control thing, but I was really focused on just keeping everything very organized and neat. Mm. You know, that helped me feel better about things if I knew where everything in my room was, or if I knew that all of my schoolwork was done and I could check items off of a list. And so I liked having everything kind of complete and organized. That helped me. That helped me cope with some of the stress and anxiety too. Right, that makes sense. Um, and and you said that like you would be at friends' houses and you'd say, "Oh well, this is nothing like my house." So when did you realize maybe that you had to unlearn um, some of these behaviors that that you were seeing? Was that was that an, an added stress to be like, "Why do I have to unlearn this?" Or was that something you learned in real time? Or as you were older, you said, "Okay, I've got a X, Y, and Z away from those patterns." 
No, I realized probably, I guess maybe in high school, um, I don't remember it being like a conscious kind of decision, but in high school, I was very much like, I am, there's no way I'm growing up to be like my parents. There is no way I'm following in my sister's footsteps. Like I want to, I like, I'm, I've got all of these, you know, models in front of me and not one of them looks like it's working out in anyone's favor. Right. So I am not like following it one. I'm gonna, I have to figure things out on my own. And so it wasn't so much of like, I need to unlearn stuff, but it, almost like I know what I don't want. And then once I went away to college and I got out of the house, that's when I started to realize like, oh crap, I really do have to unlearn things because mm. I had no idea how to really self-regulate. It was so easy for me to just completely freak out with some anxiety or with some negative thinking, or if I was angry or upset, you know, I never hit anyone or said like the cruel, awful things that my parents did, but still I had that, that, that intense anger that I saw in them. Like I recognized it in myself. Wow. And so it was like, I have to learn how to manage these feelings in a different way because I don't ever want to talk to people the way that they spoke to people. I don't ever want to make somebody feel like they have to walk on eggshells around me the way that we had to in our home growing up. And once you got to college, was there more, did you, was there more mental health support than say growing up? I mean, it doesn't sound like you had, certainly didn't have it at home and it doesn't sound like there were a lot of resources to you outside of the home. So were those resources becoming more uh, available when you were in college? Not so much, unfortunately. So I'm 47. And, you know, when I went away to college, it was, you know, the mid like 94 is mm -hmm. when I graduated high school. So I went away to college and it was like people weren't talking about mental health. You know, we didn't have access to resources. So I didn't, I didn't even know about like a, and I went to a major university. I didn't even know about like a university counseling center, anything oh, wow. like that. So I wasn't getting that support. But what I did do is I took a psychology class. And when I took that psychology class, that's when I really started to realize that there are things I can do. Um, that's almost like when I, I started to almost like, you know, self-help myself through what I was learning in that class. Once again, it, and maybe I'm I'm certainly being an armchair psychologist here, but once again, taking on the burden to fix something and, and this time it's, it's trying to fix what you've learned. And that's a lot to deal with when you're 19, 20 years old. Uh, and because there's so much going on then, man. And so you you were at college, but then you took a you, you took a one of your first uh, weird kind of nonlinear paths there. Uh, you dropped out with a semester to go, right? I did. You know, I was at college and I was really kind of questioning why I was even there. You know, I literally had only applied to one school, which even back then wasn't common. Most people applied at least to a couple schools mm -hmm. back in the 90s. Now, most kids apply to many more than that. But I only applied to the one that was kind of like our family school. Like this is where everyone in my family went to college. So why wouldn't I go there? Right. And, you know, so I went there and then I'm I'm there and I'm just like, I 
don't know what I'm doing with my life. Like, I don't know what I want to be majoring in. I don't know what I want to do. Why am I getting this degree? Why am I here? So I had already struggled all the way through college with the courses I was taking. Um, I was drinking a lot. I was smoking a lot of weed. It wasn't, I wasn't healthy for Mm -hmm. myself at all. So I had one semester to go and I'm like, this is, I'm, I can't do it anymore. I can't take it at all. So I dropped out and ended up um, moving to San Francisco with no job, wow. no money, no place to live. And because I really wanted to just like get as far away from my family and get as far away from my hometown as possible. And like anyone who knew me, it was almost like I just, I needed to go someplace to like figure out who I was and what I wanted and what was important to me in life. And I couldn't do that with people who like were rooted in my past. Now, when you do, that's a very brave thing to do as a 21, 22 year old, you know, very brave. I I don't know. Cause I, I only applied to one school too. One. And that's, it's a prestigious university in Southern Illinois that will remain unnamed, but that's where I met Brent. So it was the wrong school to apply to is what I'm saying. Uh, and, but, and I just did it cause it's like, Oh, that's what you do. You go to college now. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have that opportunity. So, how were you, were you feeling pretty confident in this decision to go out to San Francisco? I mean, it, it is bucking the trend of society of like, oh, now I graduate college, now I get a job, et cetera. Like, how were you feeling during all of this as you got out there with no job, et cetera? I was absolutely terrified. You know, right before leaving, one of my sisters called me up and just was yelling at me, like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Um, how, you know, how could you do this? At this point, my dad had died. Um, he oh. died when I was 16 from cancer. And so she was like, what would dad think of you? What would he think of this decision? And, wow. you know, and I was really just like unsure of myself and unsure of what I was doing, but I knew like, I just needed to get away. You know, I just, I needed space And I did have, I did actually have some friends from college who had moved out there. So I shouldn't say I had no place to live because I had some couches I knew I could sleep on. So it's not like I was going out there with absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. I knew like, okay, I've got some places I can stay while I get settled. Plus you could probably have stayed with the Tanners uh, of Full House because I believe they were around at that time in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You'd learn some life lessons from Uncle Joey. Yeah. That's actually... Brent loves Uncle Joey, but we're not going to go into that. So you get out there. And so tell us about your journey out there. And in well, actually, let me ask you this. What did how did that feel to hear from your sister uh, where she invoked your, your father who had passed away as as a it sounds like maybe a tactic to try to get you to stay? Like, did that hit pretty deep for you or were you just like, I, I got to go? No, I think it um, it didn't hit deep because I was really, you know, My dad had some great qualities, but he also was a very physically abusive person. Um, And he was, he did a lot of awful things to my mom. So it wasn't like hearing, you know, it wasn't like he was some great person where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm disappointing him. I was more of like, good, I kind of want to disappoint him. I kind of, I hope like there is an afterlife and he is watching what I'm doing because, 
it would make me really happy if he saw me moving to San Francisco when he was, especially because he was like this ultra conservative, Mm. you know, person and um, really homophobic and, you know, at said a lot of really awful things growing up about people of color and all this stuff. So it's kind of like, good. I kind of want to disappoint him. So it's that, that was good on that side, but I didn't like having my family so against, you know, what I was going to do for sure. That was hard. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we all need support systems in our life. And most of us, uh, a main support system is our family. And to, to, to buck that trend, to go against that is, yeah, that's got to be extremely hard. And uh, tell us about the job that you did land once you got out there and you kind of got settled. Yeah. You know, I seriously was so lucky. I don't know how this happened. Um, I got out there, you know, I was couch surfing between a couple different fronts. And somehow I landed this job at a worker owned, cooperatively run grocery store that was massive, that was like multi million dollar business. And, but it was worker owned. So once you were there for nine months, you were part owner, which meant you got like dividends and you got stock shares and, um, wow. They paid really well. The insurance was incredible. The time off was incredible. I, you know, it was a really hard place to get a job. Like people wanted to work there because of how great, it, you know, the benefits and everything were. And for, somehow I landed this job. I didn't know anyone there or anything. And I got this job and it was a really, it was really great because I made good money. And I'm, and then plus that's where I met pretty much all of my friends because, mm-hmm. you know, there were, I don't know, a few hundred people that worked there because it was really big. So I met a lot of people and got exposed to a lot of different, um, you know, ways of living in the world because pe- people weren't living there because they wanted to be like, or they weren't working there because they wanted to be some corporate person who took over the grocery store, people were working there to support their other things that they had going in their life. You know, they wanted to travel or they wanted to, you know, they were artists and this was a really great way to support these other things. So you're telling me that you had a worker owned company and you had reasonable and very good benefits. That sounds, I don't know. That sounds pretty horrible to me, you know? Anyway, an artist. Who the hell is paying artists? <sighs> All right. Anyway, well, I'm off my my soapbox there. Um, at this time, are you still keeping in touch with your mom and your sisters? I um, do not. I only speak to two sisters, so two out of three I have a relationship with, mm-hmm. and I cut uh, I cut off my relationship with my mom back in 2016. So I did for a while try and. Um, you know, like later in life, I did try to, we did reconnect and I worked on trying to have a healthy relationship with her, but uh-huh. it just kind of got to a point where I felt like it's too hard to, it's, it's not possible. So I ended up uh, disconnecting from her and I did see her recently and it was actually really great for me because I was really nervous going into it. It was going to be my first time seeing her in years and her and then the one sister that I don't speak to. And I was really anxious about it, about how I was going to feel, but it was my niece's graduation and I really wanted to be there for my niece. And I went and it was 
the best experience of my entire life because I was so like confident in who I am now. I felt so good about my life. I felt so good about my choices that it was like literally she could say anything about me or anything to me and it wouldn't knock me. It wouldn't it wouldn't matter. You know, she could tell me what I like she could say whatever she wanted about my life and it would have no impact because I feel so good about who I am and the life that I've created. And it was such a validating experience. Like I left there and I was just like, oh my gosh, if she can't rock me, like literally nobody can, Mm. you know, I felt, um, I felt invincible. That's awesome. Uh, that's really awesome. And, and that speaks to a lot of, um, work that I'm sure that you have done throughout the years, uh, mental health work, because you're, you're, and you're creating those boundaries, which I think are very, 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 very difficult uh, to keep sometimes in in certain situations. But when you were out in San Francisco, you were still talking to everybody. And were were they, did they come to visit you? Like, how how was the communication then? No, um, nobody came to visit. My communication with my family was pretty minimal at that point. I would speak to my mom on the phone maybe like once a week. Um, I really wasn't talking to my sisters very often. And, you know, even the communication with my mom, like I was so at that point, I was trying so hard to get her approval. I wanted her to see because here I was, you know, I had a great place to live in San Francisco. Like I, I had incredible roommates. I had this great job where I had all this freedom. Like I worked at a job where I was able to take two months off to go travel around Europe. Whoa. And you know and and this and then still come back and have this job and make more money so I could go and do more trips and more traveling. Like it was a really great experience to have that in your early 20s. Like it was incredible, but yet my mom didn't see it that way because there was no status attached to it. There wasn't a title, there was no it wasn't prestigious. So she didn't want to hear about those kinds of things. Um, it, so it was almost like I, I couldn't get her approval, but I was still trying to get it at that time. Yeah. Uh, status uh, uh, is an interesting word and titles. It's it's very, if you stop and think about it, and I have, I've been known to overthink things. And if you stop and think about it, man, status and titles are, are there's so much pride. I've had titles in work. I've said those titles. It makes the conversation with somebody you haven't seen in a long while a hell of a lot easier, right? Because it's like, oh, you're doing that? Great. You did it. Cool. Because society says you need to climb and climb and you're working at a place, again, this, this hellscape where you're taking time off and, and then coming back and making good money, um, where that wasn't the whole goal. Now, how, did you stay there for a while? What, what, where did you go next after the the co op? Uh, yeah, so I stayed there for a few years, and then I ended up getting hooked up um, through people that I met there. I then um, met people who ran a a cooperatively run kind of childcare where they paid me even more. And at that point, I was starting to think that I wanted to work with kids. So, and I was also going back to school to finish to get my undergrad degree. So that seemed like a good fit at that time. So I left to um, to do that, to pursue working with kids and um, 
and to finish getting my degree. And, and, you know, and like I said, I made a lot more money at this other opportunity as well. Awesome. But then eventually I decided to leave, you know, San Francisco altogether and I wanted to um, go to grad school. And at that point I felt like maybe my relationship with my family could be repaired and I wanted it to be repaired. Like, I think I still really wanted to have a relationship with everybody. So I decided to do grad school in Chicago because that's where a lot of my, that's where a couple of my sisters were living at the time and my mom was nearby. So I moved to Chicago to um, pursue a graduate degree and hoping that I would, you know, get close with my family too. Would you, does it, is it almost like, and maybe I'm stretching here. It's almost like you move back and you're still trying to fix things. And it's like you built your fort and now your fort is in Chicago because you're near the family and you're still trying to fix things. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I was trying really hard to, and I, I wouldn't even say like fix, like I wasn't trying to fix them, but I, I had this like dream. I had this, I don't have it anymore, but I can say that probably even through my thirties, I still felt this really strong pull of like, I just want a family. Like I want sisters that I can confide in. You know, I want that dream of like having a mom who I can joke around with and who's really supportive and has like unconditional love for you. And I was, I think I was holding on to that dream and thinking that maybe I could still have that. And so when I came back, I was trying really hard to connect with um, one of my sisters and her kids and to be involved in their family because that felt like a good way in, you know, hanging out with my mom a lot. That felt like a good way in. But I was still trying to be myself and who I was, but I couldn't fully like be that person because my mom, I I mean, this is going to sound really awful, but I don't think she's capable of unconditional love for somebody. There's always going to be strings attached. There's always conditions attached. And so even when you try and have that with somebody, but then they're always attaching something to it. So you never really get their full love. Ooh. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you're always trying to get it, but you know, you won't because you have to do something in order to earn it all the time. How, how, how long have you believed that to be the case? You know, cause uh, that's gotta be a hard realization to come to, uh, especially with somebody like your mother. Um, I think I probably, I would guess, I think it was 2016 when mm. I cut things off with her, mm -hmm. when we had our, our final conversation um, she said some things in it where I think it was just kind of like this aha moment where it was just like, wow, I am never going to be good enough. Like, I am never going to earn your love. And and then what was really sad about it is when I got off the phone with her, I called one of my sisters and I was telling her about the the conversation with our mom and she was just kind of like laughing and she's like, yeah, that's how mom is. And I was, and then I was just like, oh my gosh, that's so sad that you're not even shocked by the things that she said or what, she, you know, it was, and it was a really big deal, but my sister just kind of laughed it off because we were so used to it. And then yeah. when I kind of digested all of that, that's when I realized like, wow, this, this really is just how she is. 
And she's not going to change. And I can't change my relationship with her. This is too unhealthy. This is too dysfunctional. I need to just take space from her and see how it feels. And the thing that really shocked me is when I took that space, what I started to realize is that the negative voice that I always had in my head that was like so filled with like self-doubt and at times like self-hatred, I started to realize that that actually wasn't my voice. That was actually her. Oh, wow. And it was, yeah. And once I no longer had her in my life, that voice got quieter and quieter and quieter until eventually it just went away. I was like, holy crap, all this time I thought that was me and it wasn't. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I call my voice Frank. Thank you. When you, when you, what'd you go to grad school for in Chicago? Uh, I did. So I first did uh, counseling because originally I wanted to be a high school counselor. So I got a master's degree in counseling and then um, I shadowed a high school counselor and I was just like, this is not what I thought it was going to be at all. So I worked in community mental health for a while in Chicago, um, working with people with severe mental illness and helping them, um, you know, just be able to live productive lives and to feel good about themselves. And it was really, really rewarding. I did that for a really long time. And then I decided that I wanted to learn more about psychology. So while I was doing that, I went back to school again to get my doctorate in clinical psychology and then transitioned over to working with uh, adolescents at that point. Yeah. And uh, let's not uh, the heroic I and I'll use the word heroic, uh, community mental health heroes. They're heroes. Uh, and I know having lived in Chicago for 14 years, there's there's a great need for it. Um, so what was some of the things that you learned, like really that learned doing that type of very intense on the ground work uh, before you went back to school to get your doctorate? Uh, probably the biggest thing I learned is that Connection is like the abs, like you have to have a foundation of connection before you can do anything else. Like you can know all of the best like research and evidence and you can know psychology in and out and like what's going to help somebody. But all of that information is useless if you haven't first connected with somebody. And when I worked with the uh, homeless unit where we would actually go out in the streets and look for people who were homeless and also appeared to be mentally ill. So people who were walking around talking to themselves, mm -hmm. or maybe we'd get calls from like McDonald's being like, Hey, there's a guy here who seems a little off and we would go and check on them. So I actually had to really learn how to connect with people really quickly and people who were really paranoid, who probably had lots and lots of trauma in their histories yeah, and just being able to just connect on the most basic human level first is the most important thing before you can do anything else. Like you can't skip that step. Yeah. And in our culture, I would say that we want to skip any step that we feel is unnecessary because we want things to be done faster. Uh, and especially in a high stress situation, like it sounds like a lot of those, those were, I can imagine wanting to, 
again, the anxiety to want to get to the end of it and make sure that you solve the problem. But it, again, like you're saying, if you if you don't have that connection, you're not going to get to the to the solution that you want. So that's a really, really valuable lesson, I imagine. And uh, I, I'm sure, and we're about to talk about the work you're doing now, I'm sure that it has served you uh, very well in the work that you, you continue to do now. Yes, definitely. You said you wanted to work with adolescents. Before we move on to this, I want to point out something, and we talked about this before you came on. It's really inspiring to hear a story of somebody who doesn't just uh, high school, college, job, et cetera, knowing what they're going to do. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it is nice to hear that there are other ways to get to something that might not be straight line. It might it might be a bit jagged, circuitous. Circu- yeah, you know what I mean, not charcuterie board. Um, okay, and so that and it's just really cool to hear that and then you still end up doing what you feel like you should be doing and uh i i just think hearing stories like that gives me a lot of optimism a lot of hope just to know that there is a prevailing narrative in the society but that doesn't mean it's going to apply for everyone uh so i just wanted to make sure to call that out i think that's really cool Yeah. And, you know, I hear that a lot from young adults who are struggling, like trying to figure out what their purpose is or trying to figure out what direction they want to go. And they always, yeah, they feel that narrative is true that, well, I should have, you know, gone right through college. I should already be in a career. I should already, I don't know, be married or have a house or whatever. All of these, these shoulds that they're getting either from like society or Mm. from their families or from themselves on what they should be doing. I'm always telling them like, no, there is no right way to go about this. There's no right way to live your life. You know, it's okay to take time to figure things out and it's okay to try something and maybe it doesn't work out, you know? And then you're like, okay, well now I know that's not a good fit. Now I can try something different. It doesn't mean that you failed or that you wasted time. Yeah. That, Uh, I think that's just such a valuable point of view for sure. And so you get your doctorate and then you start working with, with young people again, teenagers. Tell us um, about kind of how you got into that and like what you started doing in your postdoctorate residency. Yeah. So I started to work um, because I'd been working with adults for so long in community mental health. And I started thinking that, you know, it'd be wonderful if I could actually get to some of these individuals when they're younger and help them when they're younger so that it doesn't get to the point that it did for a lot of the people that I worked with. So I started thinking that I wanted to work with younger people. I wanted to work with teens. And then I also had this pull of like, I want to be the support person that I wish I would have had when I was younger because I didn't have that. I didn't have somebody who was 100% on my team. And I want to be that for a young person. So I was work, um, you know, still working in community mental health and getting my doctorate. And then when it came time to apply for postdoc residency, I decided to focus in more on places that worked with adolescents and young adults Mm -hmm. so that I could get that experience. And, um, So that led me to a group practice in the Chicago suburbs where I was able to really start working with teens and young adults. And and even though all along the way, I I do always keep like a handful of adults on my roster. So I still continue to work with adults, but the bulk of my work is with teens and young adults. And I love 
like being able to, first of all, be that support person, but also I love it when I get to um, just not guide them because that's not my role. My role isn't ever to like tell them what to do, but just to be the relaxing person or the relaxing presence in their life that things are going to work out. Because oftentimes they're getting so much pressure from their parents. If you don't do this this way, things aren't going to work out for you. Mm -hmm. Or they're hearing that from school or they're hearing that from TV. And I get to be that relaxing presence of like, no, no matter what direction you go, things are going to work out. And I 100% believe that, you know, and I get to be that, that presence in the room for them, which I think is really special. Really rewarding, and it does sound like very much like the type of person that you um, were looking for and needed in your in your younger years as well. So, it, one of the things you know, I'll hold it up. It's an audio medium, but heck, what's fun? There's these things. Cell phones is what I held up there. Uh, Brent is looking into getting his first one. Congratulations, Brent. Uh, so on on these uh, is the good old social media and something that you didn't have to deal with when you were a teenager. I didn't have to deal with when I was a teenager. Um, and I I, I want to know from somebody who is a, a professional who, who's, who has her doctorate, who, who works in this, talk to me about how social media is making it so much more challenging to be a young person today. Well, first, like the obvious is that you're, they are only getting a highlight reel, you know, right. of other people's lives. So they're only seeing the good parts. And even when teens know from a cognitive level, they know intellectually that they're seeing curated images. They know that, you know, they understand like, oh, somebody chose that picture of themselves to put up you know, because they look good and they know that they, that person has a thousand bad pictures for every good picture that they have. But from an emotional level, when you're constantly bombarded with, that, with those things, it makes you feel like you're not good enough. You don't have enough friends. You're, you know, bot, you're not thin enough. You're not doing the right things in your life. And it really beats at your self-identity and your self-image and your self-confidence. So that's like the biggest, the biggest thing. But then the second biggest thing is just how it's creating almost like ADHD in yeah. people yep. with the distractibility. People are so distracted now by their phones and constantly checking them and looking for updates and getting notifications that they don't know how to just like almost like to, they don't know how to be uncomfortable, you know, where when we were kids, we had to sit around and be bored and be oh, yeah. uncomfortable yeah. a lot or watch like, you know, we had to sit through commercials and be annoyed or we had to just like sit in the car and stare out the window or listen to whatever crappy radio station our parent was playing. Yeah. <laughs> like right. they Sorry. don't have to do that. Sorry. Uh, it just made me think of that year and a half where my dad just played Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat over and over again on tape, the Donny Osmond version. So uh, I'll hear a Joseph song and I'll sing all the words and people will look at me like, what the hell? Uh, anyway, but yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to do this whole back in the day thing too much, but boredom, you, you hit on something there, being uncomfortable. Um, even now, 
I check my phone all the time because I feel uncomfortable that I'm missing something if I don't. But in all the mental health work that I've done, like in therapy and in books I've read, et cetera, they always talk about sitting with it, right? You got to sit with that feeling, sit with that feeling. And these phones and social media allow us to not sit with it and to, to distract it. And so it's never really addressed, I, I guess is the way to say it. And so that when those uncomfortable moments in real life happen, it's almost like we don't have the tools uh, that we used to, or would you say that's a fair assessment? 100%. Yeah, we don't, if, if every time, you know, we feel discomfort, maybe, maybe I'm waiting for my friend at the coffee shop and it feels really uncomfortable to just kind of sit there and wait I can pull out my phone and now I can check it. And so that I don't learn how to tolerate that level of discomfort. And that's just like a simple discomfort. But now I'm not getting any practice on how to deal with maybe the bigger discomforts, like the harder discomforts that there are that exist in the world. So I'm constant anytime I feel just like a twinge of, you know, um, whether it's boredom or a twinge of anxiety, a twinge of stress, whatever that discomfort is, I'm going to just immediately go to my phone and pick it up because I know my brain has learned like, oh, this soothes me, this relaxes me. But it's not healthy because we need to learn how to deal with discomfort. We need to learn how to deal with stress and anxiety. We need to learn how to be able to tolerate it so that it's not that big of a deal. And we learn that we're capable and we're resilient. And so then we can handle like the really big stuff that pops up right, too. Right. Uh, another thing with social media, I'm curious, do the people you work with, teenagers, do they talk to you ever about, I didn't get enough likes or um, my post didn't get enough engagement, that type of thing? Is that something that is brought up? Um, they don't bring it up usually for themselves, but they'll bring it up for what they see, you know, they'll, they'll bring up like, um, oh, I can't believe so-and-so got that many likes or that, you know, she always gets so many comments on her posts and it's, you know, not fair because she's so thirsty or, you know, whatever. So like they, they'll see it happening to other people. And then what will happen to them is then they'll usually post less because, you know, in the back of their mind, they have that fear, I won't get as many likes or comments as so-and-so, so what's the point? Why should I even post or put anything out there? So they do, like a lot of the teens yeah. I work with do a lot of like lurking online where they're just like looking at other people's stuff, but they're not necessarily creating their own content, which is actually one of the healthy ways to engage with social media. Creating your own content is a much better way to engage with it versus just passively consuming it. And then feeling I, well, you know, frustrations and loneliness and, oh man, I love the, the, the term highlight reel. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's a highlight reel of what life is. Uh, <laughs> one time I, I had this idea to, um, put a post on Facebook. Uh, you know how people it used to be like feeling emotional or feeling this or feeling that. I want to put one like just spent 45 minutes crying in the shower and then tagging somebody I was crying about. Uh, but I didn't. So, uh, <clears throat> when, uh, you're, so tell us about this specific work you do. You said you have some adults, some, some, or mostly teenagers, some adults. So what work are you doing? So I do, um, one-on-one -on -one brain coaching. So that's kind of like the, the bulk of what I do. And what I do with brain coaching is we're 
I'm helping individuals figure out what their purpose is, what they value, and creating goals around those things so that we can develop like a a roadmap to get them where they want to go. And it looks different for teens versus adults because a lot of the adults I work with, they already um, know a little bit more about what their purpose is and what their value is. So for them, a lot of times it's more about getting crystal clear on their goals and getting crystal clear on that roadmap and then helping them along the way when they self-sabotage or when they go off track. I'm there to help get them back on track or I'm there to help them work through whatever's kind of whatever barrier they've encountered. I'm there Mm. to help guide them through it. And for teens and young adults, it's a lot of times helping them get in touch with who they are, who they want to be, and that future self that they want for themselves, and then helping them make the connection between what you do in the present moment is going to help you become that future self that you want to do, you want to be, or that future that you want to have. And so creating those habits and those like daily things that you need to follow to create that future. I, I don't know about Wade over there, uh, but I, I feel good, and I mean this, feel good about knowing that somebody with your viewpoint and your experiences is, is helping people through that. Because again, the same way we talk about the discomfort of, oh, I'm waiting for my friend at a coffee shop. Unfortunately, we have to make mistakes in order to learn. and But we also need to be a little bit nicer uh, to ourselves about these mistakes. So it sounds like you're kind of working with these with uh, teenagers and saying, hey, not all these are going to work out, but that this is going to build to the person you become. And that is uh, an optimistic, hopeful, true, and essential message in, in, in my book. How can people reach out to you and find your services? Uh, so through my website, which is destinationyou.net. So it's destinationyou.net. And there you can see I've got my one-on-one brain coaching. I have some courses that people can go through as well to help build like good mental health habits or to help with self-confidence and goal setting. Um, I recently wrote a book that just came out uh, in December called The Emotionally Intelligent Teen that you can buy wherever books are sold. And that's for teens and young adults to help build emotional intelligence to help build like self-awareness and self-regulation and self-confidence. Um, so, but you can get all of that stuff through my website. All right. So um, we will definitely put the link to the website in the show notes. We'll also put a link to, to order um, your book as well. Can you say that name one more time? I, I was going to say, it, but I didn't want to mess it up. The emotionally intelligent teen, emotionally intelligent teen uh, or not Kevin. Okay. So, um, you're doing some really great work with young people. You're still working with adults. And, you know, again, I have to point out again, you learned so much because you took a nonlinear path and you said, this is not who I'm going, who I feel I am. I need to try this. I need to try that. I need to try that. I, I, I think it's such an amazing and important story to share. Um, and as we're wrapping up here, is there anything else? I know we've talked about a lot of stuff today um, about mental health, about your story and journey that you want to make sure to share before we wrap up. No, I think you just summarized it really well that, you know, I, I think my biggest message is there's no one right way to live or to go about life. And when people try and sell you on a particular path that you need to follow, 
you need to kind of question that right. person's motives. Unless it's Amway. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Go ahead. <laughs> but you have to question their motives and what their agenda is and figure out what's actually best for you. And we really only know what's best for ourselves. We have to, you know, tune out the noise of our the world so that we can really tune into ourselves and get clear on that. Awesome. Melanie, your story is inspirational uh, and uh, I admire the work that you're doing and I admire the path that you took to get there. And I really, really appreciate you coming on. And um, uh, as you said, it's, uh, I believe, destination destinationuyou.net um, and you can get everything there. Melanie, thank you so much for your time today and for all of the very, very important work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for creating this podcast. I'm so glad it exists in the world. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I will go ahead and wrap up and end uh, today's show the way I try to end every show, which is a, a reminder that there is always room for kindness and grace, no matter the situation. And no matter if it's just us, there's room for kindness and grace. And we will see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.